There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this edition of Kermode on Film. If you enjoy it, do remember to subscribe. It's a packed episode this week. Coming up, we have an interview with Bill Forsyth, the director of Local Hero, one of my favourite films of all time. Bill and I got together to record a director commentary for the forthcoming Blu-ray of Local Hero and did an interview with him for Kermode on Film. That's coming up soon. I also caught up with Taika Waititi. He was in town to do a BAFTA lecture about screenwriting. So I talked to him about screenwriting, about filmmaking, about some of his favourite films of all time. And from the Mark Kermode Live in 3D show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank, we have an archive interview with Sylvia Sims. All that is coming up on this episode. But first, a little location work. Look out! Look out! Look out! Take care. Are being watched. We repeat, take care, or you are now alone with a killer. It's about 8:30 in the morning, and I'm currently standing in Newman Passage, which is a little passage that runs in the centre of town between Rathbone Street and Newman Street. And I, I have to walk through this very regularly on my way to work, just to give you an idea vaguely where we are. We're about two minutes away from Tottenham Court Road Station. Across Oxford Street, there's Soho Square, which is where the offices of the, the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification Arts, where every film has to go to get classified before it can be re- released in the UK. Just a few streets down, there's Wardour Street, which used to be the entire home of the British film industry. You could walk down Wardour Street, you'd go past Rank, you'd go past Warners, you'd go past all these little screening rooms where critics would go and see the movies. And then on this side of Oxford Street, just about maybe 50 yards away from where I am now, is the Stephen Street offices of Sight and Sound magazine. I'm a big, big supporter of Sight and Sound. I started writing for the Monthly Film Bulletin when I first came to, uh, to London from Manchester. And then from there I moved on to Sight and Sound and I still contribute to Sight and Sound. And their offices are literally 50 yards away from us. Also, just across the road, is Hobgoblin Music. Uh, Hobgoblin Music I wrote about in a book that I wrote recently called How Does It Feel, which is a, a book about being in bands. I regularly go to Hobgoblin Music. I just turn up at 8 o'clock in the morning and say, I need a chromatic harmonica in C and I need it now. And they never let me down. Anyway, so I walk through this passage regularly. However, there's something about this passage which is really interesting. It's kind of thin and it's got this strange sort of eerie feel to it. It's got old flagstones on the floor. It's pretty much unchanged from what it looked like back in 1960. And in 1960... This was used as one of the key locations of Michael Powell's extraordinary film, Peeping Tom. Imagine. Someone coming towards you. 
who wants to kill you, regardless of consequences. Now, I imagine that most of you will know about Peeping Tom, just in case you don't. It's a film made in 1960 by Michael Powell. Famously, he'd worked with Powell and Pressburger, who made movies that people loved, like A Matter of Life and Death, and Colonel Blimp, and Black Narcissus, and The Red Shoes. So he was really part of the kind of the British culture. He was a national treasure. And then he made this movie called Peeping Tom, which is a serial killer movie. It stars Carl Burm as this photographer who's desperate to capture the idea of death on film. And what he does is he has a camera which he has adapted to become a murder weapon. One of the legs of its tripod has got a dagger in it. And he films people as he kills them at the moment of death. And it's a very, very disturbing film. It's filmed in garish Eastman color. And when it came out in 1960, critics hated it. I mean, they didn't just dislike it, they actively hated it. They said things like it should be torn up and flushed down the toilet. Somebody wrote a review that compared watching the film to being in a leper colony. Somebody else said it should be banned. Many, many very respected critics said they couldn't believe that an artist of Michael Powell's caliber had made something so depraved and distasteful and disgusting. And the film, having played a few weeks in cinemas, then disappeared, and for a long time it was unavailable. It subsequently became a kind of cult movie, partly due to the interest of Martin Scorsese. I interviewed Martin Scorsese about this, and he talked about having heard about the film, having been told about the film, but having not seen it, because it only opened very briefly in America and wasn't liked there at all. And then he heard about it from Jim McBride, who said, you, you really need to see this film. And somebody in a studio had a 35mm print of it that was very, very kind of depleted and a bit knackered, but... They ran it because at that point somebody was considering the idea of remaking it because they thought the idea of, you know, kind of a photophiliac serial killer was actually a brilliant idea. So they sat down and they watched the film and despite the fact that the film was in a, a very, very poor quality, all the colours had faded and it was scratchy and jumpy, Mark says he sat there and watched this film with a guy from the studio and at the end the guy from the studio said, well, you, you can't top that, can you? And they both decided that in fact it was a masterpiece and then a little bit later on Mark Scorsese was approached by somebody who wanted $5,000 to help restore the film so that it could play at a film festival. He eagerly put the money in, and a restoration was done, and the film was played at the New York Film Festival, and suddenly everybody started looking at it and going, this is a masterpiece. How did anybody ever think this was a terrible piece of work? Suddenly it started getting great reviews. In fact, Michael Powell himself said, it's incredible. I made a film, nobody wanted to see it, and then when everyone wanted to see it, nobody could see it because it wasn't available anymore. So, Peeping Tom suddenly had this second lease of life, and since then has become a real cult item. Martin Scorsese once said that you can find everything you need to know about cinema from two films, Eight and a Half and Peeping Tom. Eight and a Half will tell you everything about the lovely, delicious quality of cinema, and Peeping Tom will tell you everything about the dangerous, nasty side of it. In fact, when I talked to Scorsese, he said that one of the things that fascinated him most about the film is that it's a film about the danger of gazing and I was speaking to him back in 2010 when there was a lot of stuff going on in Britain about surveillance culture. And he said, look, we live in a surveillance culture in which everybody's being watched, everyone is being gazed at the whole time. You look at YouTube, everyone's watching YouTube all the time. He said, we have become a gazing culture and it's a film about the dangers of gazing. Well, I think about this pretty much every week as I walk through Newman Passage because Newman Passage features in the opening of Peeping Tom. I'm going to walk through it now at the moment. I'm on the Newman Street side of it. 
So if I go through the passage, there's a kind of white archway that leads us onto Rathbone Street. If you want to come, you know, find it, it's very, very easy to find. And it's really distinctive because it looks like it's from another era. And the beginning of Peeping Tom, we start with a view seen from the camera of the killer, Mark Lewis, played by Carl Bum. And essentially what happens is he walks down Rathbone Street and as he walks, he has his camera contained in his coat and he opens the coat just so the lens can look out. And then we get the POV looking through the lens with the, the lineup so that you can correct the image in the middle of it, like a cross in the middle of the image. And he walks down the street and he comes across a woman standing outside a shop, the front of which is still around, although it's now it's no longer the shop that it was before. And she looks towards him, looking towards the camera. He suggests that he's looking for a date, as they called it back then. And then she leads him down into Newman Passage. Now, looking at Newman Passage now, it's the Newman Arms, which is the pub to the right of it. Over it, it says, Truman since 1666, homemade pies and pints, real ales. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's a welcoming facade. But I guarantee you that everyone who's a film fan or a cineast, if they walk down this, immediately what they're thinking about is that really terrifying, threatening opening from Peeping Tom. And what's extraordinary, you're just round the corner from some sort of, you know, really bustling main streets because Oxford Street is just down the way. And yet somehow this tiny little passage, which can't be more than, you know, 10, 20 yards in total, is like walking into a time machine. It's like walking into something that takes you right back into cinema. It'll be two quid. This is us going into the arcade of Newman Passage. You can hear, you can hear the echo of it. There are these strange old-fashioned lights up on the wall just illuminating it. There's a door there which has got a kind of like a cage-like frame in front of it which makes it all the more sinister. It's like you take two steps outside and you're just in the normal world and you take two steps inside and you are stepping into a piece of history and not just a piece of history, but a piece of forbidden history. Scorsese said that it was like a film modi, a forbidden film, a lost film, a film that you weren't allowed to see, something you could only hear about. Well, now you can see it, and it's still every bit as striking as it was before. I mean, not least because the Eastman color color is so garish. There's also a weird connection. One of the things that happens in the film is there's a lot of stuff about photography and photographic studios and, you know, filming in slightly seedy locations. One of the people who was involved in the film was Pamela Green, who has a role in the film as Millie. And Pamela Green was the partner of George Harrison Marks, who owned a photographic studio and ended up having a career in kind of salacious uh, exploitation semi-porn films. Well... When I was a kid, I was in a band with somebody who, weirdly enough, their dad ended up writing music for films that were produced, and I think directed, by George Harrison Marks. I didn't discover this until maybe six months ago when I was researching something else, and I suddenly found that there was this weird connection between me and some of the people that had been involved in making Peeping Tom, which I thought... You know, sometimes you fall across those things, you think, I, wow, that's really, really odd. There was I rehearsing in a bedroom 
right next door to a, a musical studio where music was being written for the films of George Harrison Marx, which is a very strange connection. Last thing about this is I interviewed Thelma Schoonmaker, who was uh, Scorsese's editor and became the partner of Michael Powell. And I talked to her about Peeping Tom and how the film was reported to have destroyed his film career and whether or not he was bitter about it. And she said, no, he wasn't bitter. He just... He understood that he'd maybe pushed things too far, that he'd maybe stepped over a line that he shouldn't have stepped over. He didn't expect the critics to react as violently as they did, but when they did, he was very sanguine about it. He just thought, okay, well, it's tough meat, and they, they're not quite up to it. But what's fascinating is that now, when people talk about Michael Powell, and Peeping Tom is perhaps regarded as the most extraordinary film of his career, it's just kind of vindication. It was never that he thought that he'd done something wrong. He thought that he'd done something right, he just happened to have done it 50 years before anybody else was ready to accept it. Anyway, if you're in the centre of London, if you're wandering around Soho, do you know have a look around Soho Square. Go down to Golden Square, there's locations there. But if you get a chance, come to this passage between Newman Street and Rathbone Street and just walk down it and just feel, just feel the atmosphere of Peeping Tom creeping up on you. It's really eerie. So next up on this edition of Kermit on Film, an interview that I recorded recently with Bill Forsyth. Now you probably know Bill Forsyth is one of my favourite filmmakers. He's made films like Comfort and Joy and Housekeeping and Gregory's Girl. But my favourite Bill Forsyth film, and I think many people's favourite, is Local Hero. I first saw Local Hero when I was living in Manchester in the 1980s and I fell in love with it and I fell in love with the soundtrack. I just, I was completely transported by it. I, I was such a fan of that movie. And at that point, I was at college. I, I never thought I would actually become a, a film critic and have any chance of meeting Bill Forsyth. But, you know, one thing led to another. And I ended up going to interview him. I went up to Glasgow to interview him for a film that he'd made called Breaking In, which was a film that had a slightly troubled production history. But I sat with Bill Forsyth in this pub in Glasgow, and I said, you know, Local Hero changed my life. It's one of my favourite movies. And we kind of bonded, and ever since then we've remained in touch and I hope that we've remained friends. Anyway, here's an interview that I did with him. I recorded it in a studio just down from Newman Street. In fact, weirdly enough, everything's connected. But here's me and Bill Forsyth reminiscing about Local Hero. There is a place where the northern lights transform the sky. Anything out of the ordinary, you telephone me, night or day. Modern mermaids spring from the sea. What's the most amazing thing you ever found? Impossible to say. See, there's something amazing every two or three weeks. The land breathes with an ancient mystery. Where are we? And all who witness its wonders come to believe in its magic. I'm thrilled to be here with Bill Forsyth. Bill, lovely to be with you again. You made, as you know, one of my favourite films of all time, which is Local Hero. In a moment, we're going to record the, the director's commentary for Local Hero, which, as far as I can tell, is going to consist of me saying, I love this bit, I love this bit, I love this bit, and you trying to get a word in edgeways. Um, the last time I know that you saw it is that we did a, a screening of it in Pennon, which is the village in which the, the village yeah. scenes are shot. That we did it. it in the village hall there. And I sat there and watched it with you. It was like a dream come true watching that movie with you. Have you seen it since then? Because I know that you don't like going back and watching your own work. 
No, no, I haven't seen it since then. But you got me into trouble that night as well because uh, Did I? we uh, we were watching it, and at one point I was I kind of relaxed too much, and I said, "Oh, I hate that shot. The, the lighting's horrible." <laughs> it was it, when the helicopters come over the water at the end, and the the light was too burny and all that. I wanted I wanted a pinpoint of light, you know. And it was the same with the the, the scenes in the planetarium. The lights were all kind of f- out of focus and squishy. Yeah. So so I said to you, I kind of kind of. But you hear about it and said, you know, I've always regretted that, you know, that's this. And of course, I was so dumb because about a week later, I get a postcard from Chris Mengis, the cinematographer. Writer, the cinematographer. And, and all it said was, you should have said. And it took me about a month to work out what, what it meant. It, I had, oh, Christ, oh, is that? Th- oh, it's what we did, right? <laughs> Well, look, um, just so you know, so I don't get you into trouble, this is going to be listened to by other people. Right. Um, after all this time, can you remember where the inception for the idea of Local Hero came from? Uh, well, yeah, it was the producer. It was it was uh, David Putnam. David Putnam. Uh, I met David after that sinking feeling, and I, sh- I remember showing it to him and his wife and daughter in Soho around the corner there one one of the preview theatres one Saturday. He took me to Fortnum and Mason's for a sandwich lunch as well. <laughs> and so we're sitting in there and he said, um, well, have you got anything for me? And I pulled the script for Greg's girl out <laughs> my case. Uh, I'd come down on the bus that morning from Glasgow. <laughs> and um, he took that away. But he wasn't interested in that because he said he had done his uh, teen movie, it, it Stardust. Yeah. So he said he'd, he'd done that kind of you know, threshold you know, teenage thing. So we didn't, we, you know, we didn't communicate for a few a year or two, and then after Gregory's girl, we started to talk talk again, and um, he said, if if we can come up with something in Scotland, if you want to shoot in Scotland, if we can come up with something that's got a couple of Americans in it, I can get some Warner's money. Yeah. So that's where it came from, and the obvious thing, it wasn't a genius idea. It was the oil industry was everywhere, you know, it was in every, you know page of every newspaper so I said well what about the oil business well and I just worked on the basis of uh, the Beverly Hillbillies because I didn't want to get into the hardware you know I didn't want to get into the climbing over oil rigs because I'd done quite a lot of that making documentaries and it was pretty cold and miserable so rather than do the kind of uh, the engineer stuff the 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 sharp end will will do the other end what happens to the people when these yanks turn up with bottomless wallets you once described it to me with I think one of the best descriptions I've ever heard you know film critics like to do this thing by saying it's it's such a film meets such a film and you said the local hero was Brigadoon meets Apocalypse Now yeah exactly which I yeah. still think is the most perfect I description think it works it. I think it works yeah no no that's true that was a kind of uh, creative peg you know I think we, we we were working with that and um I had over the previous 10 years, I'd made little documentaries for the Highland Board and things like that. So I knew these little communities. I knew Scotland pretty well. Yeah. I, I'm a Glasgow boy from you know the city. But in a funny way, you can see, uh, rather than being part of that community, you observe it and you absorb it more, observing it. So I knew all these characters. I knew the hotelier who really wanted to be somewhere else and somebody else and... The wife is a blow-in and, you know, likes being there and cherishes it, all of that stuff. Do you find that, have you grown tired of any part of it? Because I watch Local Hero every year, 
sometimes more than once and every time i watch it it makes me laugh it makes me cry i see things that i hadn't seen before but i know that you're not somebody who likes to revisit your own work although you know obviously this has continued to have a life are you still as pleased with it as you always were no no i'm not doing at all no I, I'm, I'm i'm relatively proud of it it's just that i don't keep up with the technology i mean if I wanted to sit down and watch it, I wouldn't quite know where to go and find what bit of plastic to to use, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I wasn't a writer before. I mean, Local Hero was just, his, well, the third script that I ran. Um, but from in my kind of kind of backward look, it's it's always the it's always the material, the writing. That it's all on the page. Yeah, yeah. Do you still think of yourself as a writer first and a director second? I reckon, I reckon, because I think I'm a pretty... Well, I'm not I'm not an interesting director in terms that I don't... Having written the script, uh, I, I don't have a big chore. All I've got to do is film the pages, you know? But if I if I was a director who was taking someone else's material, I would have to kind of wrangle into, you know, my shape or whatever. But having written it, all I've got to do is rot it into film, you know, into the shape of film. There's got to be something. Some way out. There's got to be something more to life than committing suicide. We are sitting on a gold mine. Or should I say a steel mine? A stainless steel mine. Hundreds of them up at Martin's warehouse. Saints worth a fortune. I did a television programme recently about genre films and uh, I had a message from Ian Rankin because we did one of them was about heist movies and he said I bet you haven't got my favorite heist movie and I said what and he said that sinking feeling I said oh we're, that's in there it's there's a whole 5 minutes on that sinking feeling and I just mentioned it to you I know you haven't seen the program <laughs> yet I think you'll like it you come out of it well but you went yeah I hadn't thought of it but you're right it is a genre film it is yeah well I think when I was writing it and thinking about it I was using stuff I, I didn't sit down to myself and say oh, I'm going to get these you know 10 uh, heist movies out of the library and watch them but I was certainly using my knowledge of them and my watching of them, yeah. uh, because back then, my 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 partner Charlie Gormley, we used to run this little um, documentary company. He was movie mad and Hollywood mad. In fact, he kind of juiced me about it really. And this was pre-video, yeah. right? But Charlie had this idea that he said, "Look, Willie, we've got to learn how to make movies." And back in the seventies, you know, TV was full of. Uh, Hollywood movies, you know, yeah. f- four or five a week, you know, the March Brothers, everything, all the all the classic, the thrillers, everything. Yeah. He said, "What we should do is we should tape them on cassettes, yeah. sound cassettes, <laughs> not even, yeah. you know, yeah, cassette, cassette. and and we should listen to it and we should learn, we should learn how to time a gag, we should learn how to how, with the dialogue, and that's what we did. We used to, I used to sit at home <laughs> when it, when what you know, a kind of March Brothers movie come on." And uh, I remember uh, that Mel Brooks one, but the, the producers. Yeah, I remember that. I've still got that, and all I can hear, I had, I had the machine too close to me. All I can hear is me laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I can hardly hear the dialogue. And even if they didn't work, you know, t- technically, they didn't give us much. They were a way of getting engaged with with that stuff. Learning, how, learning the craft. From yeah, and just watch and just listening to a movie rather than. And Charlie, Charlie was sourcing this because he had he had learned or read that way way back in the forties and fifties, when they were previewing movies in Hollywood, they had the most rudimentary sound recording things. Yeah. Then they would actually record. The preview uh, shows, 
so that they could do the same thing. They could engage where the audience was kind of drifting yeah, away, yeah. the silences or whatever, especially in a comedy. So it, was, it had some integrity in that thing. You, know, you said that thing about being a writer first. You know, you made this really ambitious film, Being Human, which is an incredibly ambitious thing. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it was a big struggle to make. And I asked you some years later, how do you feel about that film now? Because it wasn't a huge hit or anything. And you thought about this. We were in a pub, and I remember this very clearly. You had a, just a little sip of your drink, and you said, I think I should have just written a poem. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. <laughs> I remember after that movie, uh, we had a preview in Hollywood, right? Yeah. Uh, with all the Warner Brothers execs, Terry Selwell and all these people at the time. And at the time, we were in a... It was it was a mall thing, and we had... The, the, the research people had gone around Los Angeles recruiting this audience, and the pitch was, would you like to come and see a Robin Williams movie? <laughs> <laughs> Being human wasn't the, your typical, you know, Robin Williams movie at the time. So that's how they got the audience... But I remember I was kind of pacing the corridor at the time while the movie was on. And it was in a, a very early kind of complex thing with, you know, four or five theatres. It was just at the time when they were kind of multiplexing things. Yeah. So all I could hear, the, sorry, the first um, dinosaur movie, what was it called? Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park was playing in the room next door. So I was pacing this corridor, listening to my 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 career kind of kind of <laughs> crumbling to snow and, and all I could do <laughs> coming through the walls and uh, it was quite an experience I wish I could film that and make, make a scene out of that because it was it was wonderful it was a nice feeling um, and there was this little lady come out from our audience and I was near the door to the exit so I held the glass door open for her she said thank you and she said were you involved in this movie? And I said, yes, I was. And she said, dig a hole and bury it. (laughs) (laughs) So I let the door go, but it was on a spring, so it didn't catch. Um, Robin Williams said that he based his accent in Mrs. Doubtfire on having worked with you. He said his Scottish accent in Mrs. Doubtfire was based on you. Not me. I think it was Mick Coulter, the cameraman. Oh, okay. Because Robin used to entertain everyone on the between takes and things when the rain came down, and the main character he had was Mick. He could do Mick uh, really well, perfectly. Sometimes I didn't know whether it was Mick or Robin that was. Hey, Wally, what do you think? Do you want you? Do you want you to close something? <laughs> All this. So yeah, he'd be he would, it, definitely Mick cold that he was aping. Mr. McIntyre in Scotland, Mr. Hepper, should I transfer him to Mr. Fountain? No, no, no let me have. Yes, sir. Happy here, McIntyre. I'm watching the sky, sir. It's doing some amazing things. It's got everything. Reds, greens, kind of sh- shimmering, and it's got a noise, too, like a far of thunder, only it's softer. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it. Be more specific, McIntyre. You're my eyes and ears there. Give me details. There's been a lot of stuff in the press recently that in the Back to the Future movies, Biff Tannen was based on Donald Trump before Donald Trump became the Donald Trump that we now have uh, in the White House. And, of course, when Anthony Baxter made You've Been Trumped about mm-hmm. Donald Trump, he famously intercut footage from Local Hero. And I know that you first saw You've Been Trumped at the Shetland the Film Shetland, Festival, yeah. which I, I co-curate. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote this brilliant article for a newspaper that said, if I had been writing a movie villain, 
if I'd written Donald Trump, nobody would have believed it because he's just too flat and too two-dimensional. Yes, Do you remember that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I enjoyed doing that. Uh, it was a Guardian, I think, that had it. Yeah, it was the only way I could put him down. They wanted me to put him down, you know, politically or whatever, or, or the, you know, as a Scotsman or whatever. I said, oh, no, I'll just deal with him as a filmmaker. You know, this guy's uninteresting. He has no backstory, you know. He's, uh, I think I remember saying that he's the rating, he's the... If there was eight guys in a lifeboat, you know, he would be the guy that would go over first. <laughs> I mean, he would be the guy that the rest would help <laughs> into the water. And that would be around about real four. But you also, you said this thing that, that in terms of the Happer character in in uh, Local Hero, played brilliantly by, by Bert Lancaster, you said the thing is, he's not wholly bad. He's, you know, there are things about him that you said he, he has to have nuance, the character has to have sympathy. And you said the astonishing thing about Trump is that there isn't any of that. There's just nothing. No, there's nothing, no. I hate his use of language. I think I, I hate the way he uses tremendous for, you know, for, for a bit, you know, 40 different meanings it's you know I just there's nothing there there's nothing there to chew on you just you know throw them overboard but that's fascinating because as you if you said you know you consider yourself a writer first and director second and the thing that really riles you about Trump is his use of that and I do understand that because I've actually had to stop reading his tweets and things because I feel like it's an assault on on the words yes uh-huh yeah. but so that's that's the writer in you reacting against him which is that's that's interesting bill yeah i don't know who i don't know who he convinces i don't know who he persuades with his language because it's uh, it's so patently inauthentic and it's coming from nowhere and he's got such a small kind of kind of breadth of awareness that you know there's it's just disinteresting that's all it is who are your favourite writers? Who do you read when you want to to relax or to or to be inspired? Oh, that's difficult. Uh, Nabokov. I've got a kind of bunch of Nabokov novels, you know, handy just for any occasion, really. So I, I think I'll probably just read them till I die. And you've never thought to adapt any of that? I mean, obviously Nabokov has been adapted for the screen several times now, but... You, well, you see, the thing is, it's very easy to steal. Is I find it easier to steal from uh, from novels in terms of using material in films, and and it's kind of hidden a little bit more. It's not like you're stealing from a filmmaker. You're not stealing from you know Truffaut or something. But if you just change the genre a little bit, you can steal much more. I know that you say that you don't watch many because I asked you just before we came in. I said, "What's the best film you've seen recently?" And you said, "I haven't been to the cinema." in ages and I said well what have you watched at home you said I don't really know how to work the DVD mm. but what are the films that, that, that are touchstones for you what are your favourites I find that very difficult to, to recall um, I think I'm scared I think I'm afraid of uh, embracing movies why because I don't feel I feel a bit inauthentic as a filmmaker right because I didn't ever start off with this passion for film, I had a passion for film once I had a job in the film business. Do you know what I mean? Um, I feel as if I still haven't graduated yet. Well, having made Sinking Feeling and Gregory's Girl and Gregory's Two Girls mm. and Local Hero and Comfort and Joy and Housekeeping and being here, I mean, you've but they haven't really. I don't, I don't feel that like I've really jumped into the water. All these films were acts of avoidance. I haven't jumped in and said, This is what a filmmaker being a filmmaker is. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, going for an audience, you know, 
wrangling an audience into somewhere that you want them to be. Uh, I think I've always been reacting to film rather than... I've been reacting to cinema in a slightly negative way rather than making cinema. Maybe I should try and make another one and I, I might find some answers, I don't know. I think you should try and make another one not to find some answers. I, think I was going to ask you that tonight because I was sitting having a pizza there and I was thinking, I've got a chance to talk to Mark here and I was... Um, I feel a bit wayward and a bit lost. I haven't made a movie in, what, 20 years. But I still wake up every morning and think about them and write them and try and get them made and half finish a script and talk to someone and my agent get someone and we have a conversation and all of that. But there's something that's holding me back from... I feel that it's kind of... Not that I've left it behind, but it's left me behind. I think I'm looking at the movies accelerating away from me, in a way. I'd actually, to tell you the honest truth, I don't know what people want when they go to cinema nowadays. I really don't know. So in that sense, I don't know what to give them. I think you, you give them what you make. I honestly think that if you set out to make a film that people want, it would be the wrong thing. I think what people want is a Bill Forsyth film, and in exactly the same way that you know Terence Davis made Terry Davis movies, and then there was a whole period when he didn't couldn't get anything made, and then through of time in the city he suddenly sort of found his mojo again mm -hmm. and I feel the same about you I think there's I think you have four or five great movies in you and I just I would just love you to make them stop worrying about what everyone thinks it's not what everyone thinks it's, and maybe it's what I think because uh, um, I suppose when you're younger there's, there's, there's well there's ambition and there's time you have to fill you know but when you get to my age it's actually a choice that's the deal. That's the what do you mean between thing. doing that and doing something else? Or doing nothing, you know? All right, can, oh. I, right, can, I, can I ask you something? Because we're getting towards the end of our time. Can I ask you something? Since you brought this up and since you said you've been thinking about doing it and you said that you wanted to ask me about it, okay? Mm -hmm. Make a film for me. Not for me, but make a film because I would like you to make a film. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, okay. Then I've got to find... Obviously, I've got, I've got to find someone who's willing to, you know, invest in it and all of that stuff. So that's... Uh, it's a practical thing as well as a personal thing. I know. I mean, the, the kind of thing, the kind of film that I'm thinking of just now, I mean, I know if I went anywhere with it right now, I would just get glazed eyeballs, you know? So that's that's the problem as well. It's not it's not just a kind of personal motivation thing. But genuinely, I mean, I've got a, I've got a kind of conscience, so I wouldn't want to make something that was just something that nobody wanted to, get on the bus and go to the cinema to see you could no more do that than fly in the air well i'm, I'm very I'm, I'm grateful for that um I'll, I'll keep thinking i'll keep working we should probably get on and do the the uh, local hero commentary will okay, you come do. back on this podcast if the movie that you're going to make now that you've mm -hmm. agreed to do gets off the ground and come and talk about it I'll, I'll come and make you a pitch and you can tell me what you think about it <laughs> i love you to pieces bill thank you When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Next up, an interview with Taika Waititi, actor, director, screenwriter, and so much more. Taika Waititi was in town to do a BAFTA lecture, a series of lectures about screenwriting, and he was about to deliver his. I spoke to him about screenwriting, directing, and some of his favourite films. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Over here, there's a pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Yeah, I'm actually a thing. I'm a being. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Korg. I'm kind of like the leader in here. I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> Firstly, thank you for coming on the show. So tell us what you're doing here at BAFTA. Um, other than eating your tea, I'm eating. I'm eating right now. I'm eating some fries and or chips. I've become a little bit Americanized over the yeah, last yeah. two years. Cause Would you normally say chips? I'd say chips. So you've started saying fries because because I'm in America, okay. and so yeah, I'd say fries. I'd say garage. I've had to say garage because people don't know what a garage is. What would you say before you went to America? Garage. Mm. Okay. Oh, great. So yeah. Yeah. We're like you. Well, you are with some words, but there are key words that you're not like us. Like what? Six. Oh, that's yeah, but that okay, fine. But that's just one vowel. It's not like putting an emphasis on a different thing. It's not like we'll go six. <laughs> oh, six. Yeah, except it kind of is because I will. You say six. Oh, you want the, you want oh you want the the cliche one here six. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for now reducing me to a cultural cliche. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Anyway, what are you doing here at BAFTA other than doing this and? Well, now you ask me for the bird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, well, hang on a second. I will wait. I'm here to um, to do a lecture on screenwriting, yeah. which, as we all know, is um, what I'm known for. <laughs> that is, that's my thing. If you associate my name with anything, it's writing scripts and lecturing, and lecturing about those scripts. Okay, so how did I'm that? Very, I'm, I'm, I'll be just between you and I and, and whoever else is listening. Um, I'm not feeling very confident about tomorrow about tomorrow's lecture. Okay, by the time anyone hears this, it'll be over. Mm-hmm. And it'll be too late. They can't pull out. They wouldn't be. If this was live, they'd, be, they'd want a refund. Okay. From the, for this. So this this will go up for the beginning of next week, as you say. By the time it goes up, it will be over. So let's pretend that it already happened. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did Tucker, it, go? It, it went great. It went. I was really impressed by how fluid you were, and I thought what was really brilliant was the way you you did it completely without notes, mm-hmm. and it appeared to be totally spontaneous, and yet it sounded somehow wonderfully planned and coherent. Yeah, well, that's um, that was the plan. Um, the plan was to make it seem like I had no plan, and just to make it seem like I was winging it, um, <laughs> and you know, and and to put it all on the audience. I think it's you know, it's you know, I you know, as a mentor to them and as a teacher, I think <laughs> sometimes it's nice to learn from the students. Yes, you know, because that makes me it, it uh, that um, enriches my life and um, and that educates me more and helps me evolve and grow as a storyteller. Okay. On a briefly serious note, 
can you give us any sense of what you might be talking about? Is it because it is, it's a lecture about screenwriting. There's a whole weekend of it. There's some, you know, very, very well-known screenwriters. There's oh traders God. talking and Nicole Holofsen is uh, speaking. And I think Ol Parker's speaking tonight. So it's, you know, it's very fine. Again, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm putting the fear of God in you. Yeah, you are. I don't know what I'm going to... I mean, I really... I, I'm going to talk about my scripts and how I got into filmmaking but it's going to be like a line between because my screenwriting is not separate to directing no. and, I, and they, for me they go hand in hand because that's the only way I've ever done it so I only write for myself I don't write for other people to direct so so my style of writing is very different I think in that I don't write to impress financiers or studios I write just so that I know what I'm shooting yeah. so I kind of write a shooting I, sh- I write as if I was on set and needing to know what I'm going to see next. So I would like a lot, a lot of the time I say, cut to this and cut to that. So it's almost like an edit. It's a guide for the editor, okay. if you like. Ricky Baker, now you are 13 years old. You are a teenager and you're as good as gold. Ricky Baker. Ricky Baker. Happy birthday. Once rejected, now accepted. By me and Hector, we're a trifecta. I run a film festival in Shetland, which is the most northerly film festival in the whole of the UK. You know, Shetland is up; it's closer to Norway than it is to you. Know, you, are, you, you know the geography of where we are. Oh yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, you guys are right next to um, France and shit. <laughs> yeah, not for much longer, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> You're drifting, <laughs> drifting <laughs> higher, closer <laughs> to Greenland now. Um, no, right, so you've got so, a festival out there. Do you, yeah. do you need someone to do a lecture on something? You know, I will definitely get back to you on that, you know, if it all goes well today. But what I was going to say was we played Hunt for the Wilder People just before it came out here, and it was the runaway hit of the festival. People just loved it. So, as the forerunner to your screenwriting, Hunt for the Wilder People, how did you start to write it? Um, so that, uh, that book is by a very famous New Zealand um, author, famous in New Zealand, wouldn't have heard of him, Barry Crump, and I'd actually written the original draft for that in 2005, um, and and it's a quite serious book. There's no, not a lot of humour in it, um, and that was again it was about an old man and a kid on the run from the law. Um, but the, the the premise is the same, but it just doesn't have the tone that um, that I, I wanted. But the first draft was very serious, and in the end of the book, the old dude, the Sam Neill character, dies. In my first draft, there's a lot of swearing, it's a lot, very violent, not much humour. And then I put it aside and went off and made three or four other films and came back to it. And by then, that was ten years later, and my whole outlook on filmmaking and the kind of films that I wanted to make had changed. And I felt like I really knew who I was as a filmmaker then. And... So I, I read, reread the script and it was as if someone else had written it. And, but I also knew exactly what I thought needed to be done. And so it was a very fast rewrite mm-hmm. to, to get to the script. It's basically what you see now in the film. And you talked about that tonal change. The, 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 I mean, it is comedic, but it's something more. Than, what is the tone of Hunt for the World of People? How would you describe it? I, I find it really hard to describe not only that film, but all of my films. Because a lot of people say, oh, it's a comedy, but it's not. None of my films are actually comedies. They've got a lot of jokes in them mm-hmm. and humorous parts. But I'd say they're more dramatic. They're more dramas or they're more uh, art comedies. Is that, can that be a thing? Can I coin <laughs> a phrase? Now. Can I coin this phrase? Art comedy? Um, 
where it's okay to have slow bits and it's okay to have 10 minutes of the film where there's no jokes at all and it's just more poetic and then you get back into the humour and just to mix it up and make it for you know and this sounds wanky but I think that's more reflective of what life is like you know it's not jokes all day long yeah. but it's also you know hopefully for most people not um, you know you're not um, in the, the dark the darkness all day long either you know there's moments of light as well yeah. um, so that's what you know I feel like there's a great balance and that's why I spend a lot of time editing my films you know, twice as long as most people would spend just to get that balance right. And sometimes think, oh, you know what, it's too funny now. And, you know, there needs to be some heart. Otherwise, it just feels stupid. It doesn't feel like you feel anything. Um, and now it's too dramatic, and now it's just too earnest, and now it's too cheesy, and now it's um, too dark. And But that happens know, in the editing process rather than the writing process. In the editing. Okay. In the editing, yeah. In the writing, I try and write... My scripts I write a little bit too long, just because I feel like I want to put all of the humour in there, which in, in, for the most part that's usually just scenes that are way too long, with yeah. lots of you know jokes and conversations that go on too long. And knowing that I'll eventually kill a lot of that stuff later on, but you may as well shoot it if you're going to be there. Yeah. What's your favourite film of all time? Mm, um, I think still my favourite would be... It's sort of like a top five, but the graduate, the graduates in there, the graduate, Badlands, um, Stalker. Mm-hmm. It's actually in the top five. Not funny at all. Um, I don't know. It's all. I mean, it's all of those films. That, but even you know, Ghostbusters is probably in 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 that top ten. Back to the Future. Um, all the Hal Ashby films. Oh, what's your favourite Hal Ashby? Well, it often goes between Coming Home. Um, which I know is not people's favourite. Uh, right. Coming Home is a masterpiece. Yes, it's incredible. Coming Home, um, last detail, mm. I really love. Um, I do love Harold and Maud, and I do love Being There, but they're not my favourites. Being There is a weird one, because Being There is the one that everyone's seen, and Harold and Maud is a weird one, because it's the cult one that everyone's seen. Mm-hmm. Coming Home is the is the one that everyone forgets should have won the Oscar for Best Picture the year that The Deer Hunter did. Yes, yes. And, and I'm just astonished to this day. People say, oh, of course The Deer Hunter... You, it, I mean, I'm not oh, a fan of, of it. It's too long. Yeah, and it's nonsense. <laughs> this goes on. The beginning is like 40 minutes of a wedding or something, isn't it? Yeah, but also, I mean, in term, well, there's a whole story about you know the deer. But the fact is, you know, coming home, I think arguably Bruce Stern's finest performance, and I love Bruce Stern in you know many things, including Silent Running. But I think he's he's just brilliant in that film, mm-hmm. and. The fact of how daring it was mm-hmm. about the you know the, the sex scenes or the absence of them or the presence of them, and it's the same year as the Deer Hunter. While somebody yeah. else was making this rampagingly nationalistic, angry film, somebody else, Hal Ashby, was making yeah. Coming Home. Yeah, and I love the story about um, when Bruce Dern's character, you know, going off into, at the end of the war. He's like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to Ashby Dyke takes him into the trailer and plays him um, Tim Buckley a Tim Buckley song the song that's actually in the video this is the song that's going to accompany this and like this is what's about and, and, um, and that's like one of the, the, the greatest moments I'm so glad you chose that I, I absolutely love that film Back to the Future Back to the Future I just think structurally and because of like just how everything was thought through and how satisfying it is again and again to watch and you pick up those little things that they're hinted at and they're seeded in the beginning you know in, in the modern in the present day um, version of the town and then you pick that up again in the in the 50s and then you pick it up again when you get back and it's, it's almost like like Groundhog Day is you know, a very similar thing where it's like 
you notice all of the characters, all the peripheral characters, and it feels like there's no wasted space in Back to the Future. And you mentioned Badlands as well, which again, I mean, it's incredible use of uh, pop music. The scene in which they dance around the record player when they're outside is just absolutely beautiful. And wonderful use of voiceover. And I remember seeing Badlands, I mean, kind of when it first came out, I must have seen it on a revival. And it was one of those films that was almost immediately a cult film. Everyone in the audience knew every yeah. line, every tick. Why do you think that? Um, well, for me, because I came to it very, you know, like so many years after it, after it came out. How old are you? I'm 43. Okay. And oh. so when I came to it, like I had no idea really about young Martin Sheen or Sissy Spacek, who you instantly fall in love with and you wish was your girlfriend. Um, but also that, yeah, you're exactly the same thing. I think I, I saw Days of Heaven before I saw Badlands. Okay. And in both the voiceovers in those films, I'd never seen a film where the voiceover has little or nothing to do with what you're watching. Like, but in Days of Heaven especially, yeah. it, because it was done in post. Um, it wasn't just explaining what you're seeing or what you're about to see. So I loved that, and I loved how poetic it was, and just how funny the characters were in Badlands. You know, I love Kit, you know, I love um, Martin Sheen's character, just because he reminded me of a bit of myself and of my dad, and just like the, and just grown-ups who were still just living this dream of like being being an outlaw, or being in a movie. And I think that it still holds up now because that's what kids are like, probably in every generation. We just talk a lot of shit about thinking, yeah, think that everything's important. And like, yeah, I love her voiceover. She's just, she's just, I don't want to say dumb, but like, she's, you know, the way she sees the world and everything. She's got a very beautiful, the, the beautiful montage when she's, you know, it's all the, the photographs of, you know, when she's thinking about what her life, mm. you know, might have been like. You know, and, um, you know, a lot of that is, feels like someone on social media. Yeah. We need to listen to her. Of all the things that you've made, what are you most proud of? And is there anything that you're less proud of? Uh, I'll just talk about features, but the features, um, the, the one I'm most proud of still uh, is Boy, just because it's a very personal film and it's a film where I really felt um, that I managed to copy Badlands um, enough to, you know, to <laughs> satisfy, <laughs> to satisfy um, that need. Kia ora, my name is Boy. Welcome to my interesting world. My favourite person is Michael Jackson. He is the best singer and dancer in the world. Last month he put out a record called Thriller. It sold a gazillion copies and now he lives in a castle with a snake and a monkey. He is so famous that you can even see him in the stars. Yeah, it's a film that I felt like there was a lot of myself in it. And... Um, and... I was lucky enough to make it in New Zealand where you don't, it's very hard to get shut down and very, you know, you, you don't, you get a lot of notes a lot of time, but it's not often that they'll take the film away from you. Okay. And they really let me do what I wanted to do. And um, I think if I'd come to, after my first film, if I'd come to, to LA and, and got into that system, which was, you know, it, it was very tempting and there were a lot of opportunities to do that, I would not. I wouldn't be the filmmaker I am now. I would have gone on and made some films for money, but I wouldn't have my own voice. And I'd probably have a house, <laughs> which I don't <laughs> at the moment. I'd probably have like the, the things that people associate with success in Hollywood, but I wouldn't be able to call my own shots or just, you know, well, I wouldn't be able to do the film that I'm editing right now, um, Jojo Rabbit, which is very much my style and my kind of film, 
but I feel like I wouldn't have ever had the chance to even to pitch it or to you know to get someone interested in it. What can you tell us about it? Tonally, it's, it shares a lot with all of the rest of my films. It's set in World War Two, um, sort of strange art comedy about um, a little boy in the Hitler, That's sticking, isn't an it? art comedy about a little boy in the Hitler Youth who um, wants to grow up to be the best Nazi he can and um, discovers his mother's hiding a girl in the attic and he's trying to figure out what to do about this thing upstairs and the entire time he's um, he's been given this terrible advice from his imaginary friend who's a version of Adolf Hitler and so it's a boy and Hitler trying to deal with this monster in the attic. Okay. I can't picture it. Well, yeah. Everyone else can't see the, the, the look that you had on your face when I was talking about it. <laughs> but it was of kind of confusion and sort of fear and disgust and doubt. A lot of doubt. But that's what you, that's that's what you get that's, that's when what you... No, no, totally. Well, that's, where I, that's probably the ex- expression I have on my face when I talk about it. Because I'm like, uh, this... I liked, with my films, I like when it feels like it could be a career ender. And not like <laughs> I like, want to self-sabotage, but... I do like the feeling of this is a very dangerous, dangerous waters to be treading in. Not because it's Nazis, but because who knows where this film could go, end up? You know, it could, could just I could just be tipping it, tipping the balance, and making something that just feels irreverent and feels like it's, um, you know, making light of what happened, even though it's not. And that's you know, and I. I Thankfully, I've seen the film a few times with some audiences, and, it, and luckily, it's, it, it, you know, it does have some deeper, some deeper meaning, and it doesn't feel like it, it belittles anything. So it's pretty close to finished. It's, uh, well, close to finished, as in I, I'll, I'll probably deliver it in about May next year. So I've got a lot of time to work on it, which is what I need because I really don't want to screw this up mm-hmm. because I've, this one I wrote um, seven years ago and. I've been thinking about it, and it's been the film that I feel is next to Boy probably going to be my most important film. And at what point do you do you finally shut the door on something and say, okay, that's it, that's done? You said you take twice as long as most people in editing. It sounds to me like you edit like most people would edit a manuscript. Like you, it's you know the the pieces are in play. At what point do you know that it's done? Um, when they pry it from a cold dead hands. No, the, when uh, I'll know when I'm really sick of it, or when I don't have any more notes. And there is a certain point when I I can't think of anything else. That, you know, if I do think of more things, then it's just too finicky, and I'd be like, take a frame here, take a frame. You know, if the story's there, and the emotional arcs are there, and you know, when I show it to people, if they basically if they laugh in the right places and are quiet in the right places, then I feel like you know, you're, yeah, you're in a good place. If it's the opposite, and they're laughing in the bits when they should be crying, and, and you know, then you're in trouble. So now, like I feel the film at the moment is at about 75% if I was to test it, probably. Okay. But I want to get it up to like a 90, 95. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. I mean, it sounds fascinating. And as you said, all those things that when you're describing it, that's exactly what you want from somebody describing film. Rather, than, Oh, yeah, I know. And it's that one, and it's that one, and it's that one. Let me ask you one final thing. Do you still love cinema as much as you always did? Because you've talked about it with great fondness and great enthusiasm. A lot of people in the industry, they lose the love of it. Do yeah. you still love it like you always did? I love when I get a chance. When, like when a movie starts, I love it. Actually getting the time to sit down and watch a movie and get that excitement before watching a movie is harder. But if I'm... If something comes on, then I'll be transfixed. 
I don't watch as many films as I used to. You know, when I was first starting, I would watch you know two or three movies a day sometimes, and just just because I was just I wanted to absorb everything, and and because I was young. I was discovering cinema from around the world, and I remember when I discovered Korean cinema, it just, you know, it just changed my life. So, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that feeling again, because I'm so busy doing my own things and so infatuated and so engrossed in my own shit, yeah. that like now I feel like, it's actually, I feel like it's a little bit too, too focused, I'm too focused on myself at the moment to like really yeah. explore and discover things that, that used to give me so much energy and so much um, inspiration. Very last thing, Sam Neill made a documentary about New Zealand cinema and he said all New Zealand cinema is about one of two things, you probably know this, about people staying where they are and going crazy or people getting in a car and driving away because if they stay where they are, they go crazy. Do you think that's true? Yeah, it's true and that's why we all leave the country so much (laughs) because you know, huge rates of depression down there. We're an island, just like you, but except with less shops and less things to do and it's a bit more boring and so, you know, you can't. As a teenager, you can't help but just feel. Like, I've got to get out. I've got to get out. I've got to get out of here. So you feel a bit caged, and so I think that reflects a lot in our art. Which is, he also said, called it the, coined the phrase "cinema of, of unease," and which is the title of the doc. Yeah. yeah, which is really what it is. You know, so when I first came, bit, yeah, into this, and when I first wrote that first draft of Hunt for the Wilder People, it was very much um, in keeping with that, which was just. Okay, well, I guess someone's going to die, and someone's going to be a ghost, and uh, you know, and it should be raining all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure speaking to you, and I, I, I hope that the lecture goes well. I'm sure it will do. I'm sure you could just, you could just do this for a living. I should. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Next on this episode of Kermode on Film, an interview from the MK3D live show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank. This was recorded last October. I've been trying for ages to get Sylvia Sims to come on the show. We couldn't quite make the diaries work. But last October, all the stars finally lined up. She came on to talk about her role in Victim and also about her recent film Together, which is available on streaming services now. We believe we have reached an agreement that should be favorable to all parties. There are a great number of experts who have your well-being uppermost in their minds. My husband and I don't automatically trust experts. The thing is, we just want to be uh, Together. together. Now, could I have some water, please? Could you have some? Oh, yes. There's a lot of empty glasses here. I just saw that immediately. <laughs> And I've been eating nuts because we couldn't get any crisps. <laughs> and I'm diabetic, and you're not supposed to go for too long. Sylvia. Yes. I'm so glad to have you on the show. It's such a and, and the, we 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 asked when you were when, when the victim reissue happened, but you were in the middle of making a film. Yes, I've just made a super film. Tell for us. For old people. <laughs> Peter Bowles and I play an elderly couple. It's kind of Romeo and Juliet for the elderly. (laughs) We won't be parted. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our seat. And we just love one another very much. And for lots of complicated reasons, we're separated. It's called Together should be out November sometime and what was very exciting was a small budget film 
but it was actually written with me in mind. And I'm not Maggie Smith or Judy. I'd never done anything posh like that, so I was very thrilled. <laughs> the only trouble is, I should have looked better. I should have done something with the face, or taken a bag out from under the eye, or even lost some more weight. But the truth is, I look like what I am. I'm 83, or maybe 84 next year, yeah, 83, and I'm an old lady, you know, a fat old lady, actually. So it was quite nice to be working with Peter Bowles, who didn't seem to be bothered much by it. <laughs> Now, we better talk about these other films. Well, no, but let me just ask you, so Peter Bowles is currently... He's going to do The Exorcist! On stage! I must promote that! <laughs> Peter... Well, it's more interesting than talking about old movies. The, um, <laughs> Peter Bowles is about to open in the live theatre thing of The Exorcist. Yes, he really is. Have you seen it? No, I haven't yet. I'm going to go when they've been on a couple of days. Have you seen the film? You know, it's silly, and you're going to be livid. <laughs> I've always known it was easy to make myself popular. <laughs> um, I never wanted to see the film. I don't want to see the film. I will go and see Peter and Jenny Segro in the play. But that's different than my mates. So, not, not a horror film fan? Not at all. Have you, ne have you never liked a horror film at all? No, I once had to do one. Yes. When I was all chopped up by somebody, I can't remember who. <laughs> um, and it was called Asylum, I think. Okay, but you never, you never went to the to the movies to go and see. No, this and I turned down when I was very short of cash because I never earned much money. I was a contract artist. <laughs> um, the um, I never was tempted, though I obviously having a nice body in those days. Um, you have to realise I was offered certain things, yes. especially, but I never was tempted. I wouldn't do it. I used to go on tour with a play or something. OK, I know you, that you said that um, it's more interesting than talking about old films, but I do want to just ask you a little bit about Victim, because as I said... Ah, we... well, that's different. Fine. <laughs> Why did you stop seeing him? He was getting too fond of me. Are you sure you weren't getting too fond of him? Answer me. I want to know the truth. I want to know why he hanged himself. He was being blackmailed. That's why he stole? Yes. Someone found out he was a homosexual and blackmailed him. That's it. Victim, could I just say great praise <clears throat> for the most wonderful actor whom I loved as a person, Dirk Bogart. You have no idea, or maybe you do, I don't... Oh, I'm terribly sorry, I'm projecting too much. No, you please, go ahead. I... <laughs> I've got a voice that can be heard without microphones in the Albert Hall. <laughs> My son over there once said, why do you shout? I said, I don't shout. I'm projecting. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, Dirk. Yes. Now the thing is, he must have known it was a dangerous thing to do. He never talked about being gay. I know he lived with his great friend, Tony Forward, for many, many years. He kept his private life private, but he was very revealing when we were doing the film. They were his lines when he says, I put him out of the car because I wanted him. Do you understand? I want him. And that was written by him, with the permission of the director and so on, of course. It's difficult to explain nowadays how you can love somebody so much. Now, Dirk was never interested in me. He had a lot of women friends, but there was something about him which was extremely special. And it was not just a clever writing. He was such a clever man, and he studied terribly well. This film, we knew was a risk. And I think maybe some of you who are young will not understand the difference. We didn't, young women I'm talking about, we didn't know much. Very few of us, if you're a respectable girl, middle class, daughter of a judge, you hadn't been to bed with somebody before you got married. It wasn't done in those days. And if you did, it looked very askance, you know, it wasn't quite the thing to do. And if you think about it, Vanessa married somebody who was gay. Her mother had been married to somebody who was gay. Yes, you see, it's in history, all those things. And I just don't think we thought about it that much. I imagined he was adequate in bed. <laughs> but I never, I never felt it was part of the suggestions. I love Dirk. He was beautiful and interesting and loved his garden and all that. So I never worried about whether he was gay or not. And I didn't like people talking about that kind of thing in a derogatory manner. And they did. My God, they did. And apparently many people refused to be involved in the film because of yes. the subject matter. They couldn't get anyone to play the girl, uh, the wife, because they didn't think they should be doing it. And um, that was tricky because I was five months pregnant. Now, you have to see this tiny, slim creature in the film, but I was five months pregnant and getting very ill and went into hospital and was in there for months and Dirk sent me a beautiful thing every week, a sort of little garden. It was an extraordinary... I was proud to be part of it. My ex-husband, who'd been in the army, of course he'd done his national service, which they did in those days, he was very sympathetic to friends who were homosexual. He had no problems with it at all. I don't think my father did, and he was of different generation entirely. So some of us were tolerant, and we knew that people like Harry Andrews and had a boyfriend and whatever. And you've got the other thing I was going to say, very importantly, because you mentioned about the fucking about... Sorry. <laughs> I, I think you are allowed to say anything at all. <laughs> I worked with a lot of men. I can't say, except for once, and it was pathetic, I was ever propositioned. 
And I think probably I'd learned enough by then. I'd worked in the theatre and things. I just I would have given them a mouthful, I suppose. But the men I worked with, Anthony Quayle was a war hero. You know, he'd been taken out of a rotten little cave by... I mean, it was extraordinary, his experiences. Johnny Mills had daughters. It was not... We weren't looking for it. Some of the crew were a bit rude. <laughs> but I always believed, and I just loved that side of it. I loved the technical side of the cinema. I loved being friends with the crew. We were part of the family. And so maybe they didn't... I don't think I was unattractive. <laughs> but I just never had problems. When you look at that extraordinary body of work, which are the films outside of Victim, which you've spoken very passionately about, which are the ones that you have the, the fondest memories of? Which are the ones that you're most proud of? I'll tell you, the one I get paid for. Oh, yeah, OK, come on. <laughs> which is the only one I do get paid for, and that's The Queen. Do you know something? I've had a proper fee from that film. <laughs> you have to realise that all the stuff... It was incredible. I was so excited. And I even get a repeat when it's shown. Oh. <laughs> no, we weren't paid very well. I was a contract artist. And I got 30 quid a week, and I got 30 quid a week for Ice Cold and Alex, which in fact is one of the most shown war films. It's extraordinary. Seska, did you get, did you get, when Ice Cold and Alex was used in the beer advert, did you get residuals? Yes, but the first lot was made by a different company. We had to use it for Carlsberg. Yeah. And the three of us got, um, yes, 20,000 quid, I think. Which after Probably the best lager in the world, then. <laughs> but really, then that was very special. Yeah. But no, it's very odd. Because but sorry, I interrupted your train of thought when you said you were about to say which one was I most proud of, and then you, it looked like it was coming to you, and then I just leapt in with a cheap gag about residuals. I'll tell you the one I was best treated on. <laughs> Amazing. And maybe that's why I didn't have trouble with the men later. My first film was with Anna Neagle and Herbert Wilcox. It was called My Teenage Daughter. And I was so thick, I thought everybody would treat me like that. <laughs> I was like their godchild. I was sent off to have lunch at a certain time. I was very well treated. And I didn't know. It was different when I was under contract. You got the bloody dressing room next to the lavatories, you know. Uh, no, but Anna and Herbert were just so wonderful to me. I thought it was all going to be like that. And I didn't have any problems with him, and I was never... So I think I thought it was going to be different. Um, and I didn't know much about the business. I really didn't. And I was pretty thick. But I also loved the work. I loved the work. They could have said, and they did recently, could you come and do this film for fourpence? And I said, yes, of course. <laughs> I do, I just, it was different for me, and it was maybe different for my generation. So I don't really have a favorite. 
Ice cold, I suppose, is special, because it was utterly vile. <laughs> to do it in that... Oh, forget it. Anyone who thinks the desert is romantic <laughs> is insane. It's full of flies and sand, and it's rather nasty. Is there anything else you want to know? <laughs> You know what I honestly think is? That I should stop doing this show and you should do it every month. Because I think Sylvie Sims live in 3D and a monthly for the thing. I think you just, you would, we'd sell out, right? Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's such an honour. I'm very much looking forward to the film, which you think opens uh, quite... November, November And it's, it's called again? Together. Called Together. And will you come back? I'd love to. You know I like showing off. <laughs> Well, there we go, a little flavour of the MK3D live show, which, as I said, happens every month live at the BFI South Bank in London. If you want to come along, just go to the BFI box office and check it out. Thanks so much for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. If you liked it, please do subscribe and also get in touch. The best way to do that is through Twitter. I'm at Movie, and just mark your question or your comment or whatever it is that you have. Hashtag Film. Love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.